I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Micah chapter 4, verses 2 through 5. As we continue our series through the prophecy of Micah. And many nations shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths, for the law shall go forth of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall judge among many people, and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. None shall make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts hath spoken it. For all people will walk, every one, in the name of his God. And we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. This is actually the second part to a sermon begun last Lord's Day, dealing with the millennial glory of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is biblical hope? Is it mere wishful thinking as when we say, I sure hope it doesn't rain today? Dear ones, if that is all that biblical hope is, then we who are Christians have nothing more than the most godless man that walks upon the face of the earth. For even the godless atheist has that kind of mere wishful thinking. Even the godless atheist wishes upon a star. No, that is not biblical hope. Rather, biblical hope, dear ones, is a certain confidence. Biblical hope is a firm expectation that what God has promised in his word, he will unfailingly and without exception bring it to pass. Consider what biblical hope is from Titus chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2, where the apostle says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began in hope of eternal life, which God promised 
And who cannot lie and will keep his promise to give to his people that life which he has promised? You see, dear ones, biblical hope is not a maybe. Biblical hope is a must be. Those who are without Jesus Christ, however, are described in the scripture as having no hope. In Ephesians 2.12, the apostle is speaking of the former condition and state of these believers. And he says concerning these who were once in sin, dead in their transgressions, he says that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Why were they without hope? Because they were without God. They were without Christ. They were without the covenant of grace. And therefore, they were hopeless in this world and in the next world if they did not receive Christ. But these did. Therefore, they are filled with hope. And without a doubt, dear ones, one of the greatest terrors and horrors of hell itself is that there are no second chances. Hell is a place of torment, but it is not only a place of torment. Perhaps the greatest torment is not the physical anguish, but rather is the mental anguish of hopelessness and despair. To be totally engulfed in hopelessness, not for a brief period of time, but for everlasting, for eternity, no hope. You see why this is a place that, that we must avoid and flee from by fleeing to Christ at all costs. A place of hopelessness. Remove hope, dear ones, from a person, and there is left only despair. And that is why we must ever set before our eyes hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and in our presentation of the gospel of Christ. Our presentation must always be presented as the sinner trusting in his only hope of eternal salvation, Jesus Christ. That must be our message so clear. There is only hope in Christ. One of the great promises of hope upon which the prophets and people of God have feasted throughout the ages is that of the glory of Christ's universal victory in crushing the kingdom of Satan and in exalting the kingdom of Christ by bringing the nations of this world into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ so that the vast majority of the nations of this world will swear allegiance to Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this is what is prophesied, for example, in Psalm, or I'm sorry, in Isaiah 45. Verses 22 and 
Isaiah 45, verses 22 and 23. The Lord speaks through his prophet and says, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. I have sworn by myself. The word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. That unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. That is, every tongue shall swear allegiance to the Lord. In that time, in that period of history, when all the ends of the earth are drawn unto Christ, when all nations flow into the church of Christ, then all nations will take up the covenant and will swear allegiance to the Lord. This is the great hope that filled the hearts of God's prophets in the Old Testament. This is what filled and helped God's discouraged and downtrodden people in times in which they were persecuted. There is coming a time not simply in heaven. We look forward with great anticipation to heaven. But there is coming a time here on earth when God will destroy his enemies. When Christ will see his possession, the ends of the earth, brought unto himself. And this is what is promised through the prophet Micah in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. This Lord's Day, I will address the following main points of hope from our text. First of all, the hope of the nations. Second, the hope of ecclesiastical unity. And thirdly, the hope of universal peace. Last Lord's Day, we noted that this prophecy was to be fulfilled in what Micah calls in verse 1, the last days. That is, before the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel of the Lord will be mightily blessed by God's Spirit in bringing destruction to the kingdom of Antichrist and ushering in an unprecedented time of gospel blessing throughout the world. Micah also addresses in verse 1 how the mountain of the Lord's house, which is the kingdom of Christ, shall be exalted above all earthly kingdoms in glory and in importance. And how the peoples or nations and the leaders of this world will flow like a mighty river into Christ's kingdom. This is historic post-millennialism. This is the position of this church. This is the position of faithful, reformed, and Presbyterian churches in the First and Second Reformations as well. This is not a novel view maintained by a few radicals here and there, but rather it is, as I hope to demonstrate in part today, the classic position of biblical hope professed by the Reformed and Presbyterian churches when God poured forth this blessing so mightily in the First and Second Reformations. 
Calvin states in his commentary on Psalm 72, the whole world will be brought in subjection to the authority of Christ. The nations will be convinced that nothing is more desirable than to receive from him laws and ordinances. That faithful martyr and covenanted minister for the cause of Christ in Scotland, Richard Cameron, spoke these words in a sermon three days before he was struck down by the anti-Christian forces of King Charles II. This is cited from the Puritan Hope, pages 54 and 55. Cameron said in that sermon, You that are in hazard for the truth, be not troubled. Our Lord will be exalted among the heathen. But many will say, we know he will be exalted at the last and great day when he shall have all wicked on his left hand, that is, at the time of judgment. Yes, but says he, I will be exalted in the earth. He has been exalted on the earth, but the most wonderfully exalting of his works we have not yet seen. The people of God have been right high already. Oh, but the church of the Jews of the Old Testament was sometimes very high and sometimes the Christian church of the New Testament. In the time of Constantine, she was high. Yea, the church of Scotland has been very high. Fair as the moon, clear as the sun, terrible as an army with banners. The day has been when Zion was stately in Scotland. The terror of the church of Scotland once took hold of all the kings and great men that passed by. Yea, the terror of it took hold on popish princes, nay, on the pope himself. But all this exalting that we have yet seen is nothing to what is to come. The church was high, but it shall be yet much higher. There is none like the God of Jeshurun. The church of Christ is to be so exalted that its members shall be made to ride upon the high places of the earth. Let us not be judged to be of the opinion of some men in England called the fifth monarchy men. These are basically premillennialists who say that before the great day, Christ shall come in person from heaven with all the saints and martyrs and reign a thousand years on earth. But we are of the opinion that the church shall yet be more high and glorious as appears from the book of Revelation. And the church shall have more power than ever she had before. Why has the Lord given such great promises to us as people? The Lord has given us these great promises in order that we, his people, may not despair. Though the world presently love not our Christ... And though the world presently hate us, his disciples, and though the world persecute us to the ends of the earth and take away our physical life, we are encouraged that Christ will yet demonstrate his judgment upon the nations. And he will take up the rod and smite the nations. And his spirit will go forth through faithful ministers who will proclaim the truth so that the the nations will flow into the church. 
And dear ones, I submit to you that we are a part of that great work that Christ is accomplishing. I submit that we are not the only ones, the only believers on the face of the earth that are a part of this great work, but I submit to you that we are a part of this great work and we ought to see ourselves so. For the end, as we said last Lord's Day, the end of the 1260 years prophesied in Revelation chapter 11 are soon to come to an end. And upon the ending of that particular time, though the witness may be subdued by the Antichrist, the witness of the faithful witnesses may be subdued. It may appear that they have been put to death, put to rest, silenced. Yet the Lord will raise up his people in a figurative and spiritual resurrection in which they will go forth and will subdue in the power and the strength of the Lord all nations. This we pray, this we hope for, this we look to. Within our generation, yea, within our children's generation. Let us consider then our first main point. The hope of the nations. In Micah 4.2, Micah says, And many nations shall come. Notice here that Micah, in describing what will occur, says, And many And I emphasize the word many and many nations shall come. This prophecy speaks not of just a few nations here and there who will come and flow into the church of Christ. But many of them throughout the whole world will do so. This is the clear testimony of God's word. Consider what Isaiah chapter two, verse two says. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow into it. All nations. Consider the words of the psalmist in Psalm 22, verse 27. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord. And all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. All the families of the nations shall worship before thee. Is this simply to look forward to that eternal state after Christ returns? After the resurrection, after the judgment in the eternal state? Is that when this will be fulfilled? The context, context forbids such. This happens Here upon the earth before the second coming of Christ, for we see in this particular context many items which pertain not to eternity, many things that can only pertain to that of this temporal life. Notice in verse 24, for he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither hath he hid his face from him when he cried unto him, he heard. 
Notice in verse 26, the meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek him. Notice what it says in verse 29. All they that be fat upon earth shall eat and worship upon earth. All they that go down to the dust shall bow before him. All of those who are of dust, all of those who will who are mortal and will die will worship before him and none can keep him alive, his own soul. Notice verse 30. This doesn't happen in eternity. A seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. Posterity being born generations. Will worship before him. This is in time, not in eternity. Likewise, compare what the psalmist says in Psalm 72 concerning the extent, the all, the many who will come and worship before the Lord. Psalm 72, verse 11. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. Again, I submit to you that it is not in eternity First of all, that this will be fulfilled. Certainly, there will be that occurring in eternity. But this is first fulfilled in time. Again, that is the context in which this is spoken. Notice what it says again in this passage. In verse 7, In his days shall the righteous flourish and abundance of peace so long as the moon endureth. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river and to the ends of the earth. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him and his enemies. Does that occur in eternity? His enemies shall lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Verse 12. For he shall deliver the needy. When he crieth, the poor also and him that hath no helper. There will be no needs in eternity. There will continue to be needs in time. But these prophecies relate to time, to the millennial glory upon the earth, which the Lord shall pour forth upon his people. And I would draw you to one more passage very quickly that is Romans chapter 11 which speaks of this mighty ingathering of the nations unto the Lord Romans chapter 11 In Romans chapter 11, the Apostle Paul addresses the matter of Israel's blindness. That is the nation of Israel. Israel is a people, their blindness, and how long she will continue in that judicial blindness administered by the Lord for her apostasy. Let me ask several questions as we look at just key verses within this text. Is God finished with Israel as a people? God forbid, Paul says in verse 1. I say then, hath God cast away his people, that is, his people Israel? God forbid, for I am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Why has God not cast aside his physical seed, his people Israel? 
Why has he has not cast them aside altogether? Though judicial blindness has fallen upon them. In verse 28 and 29, Paul explains, As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. Presently, Israel is an enemy of the gospel. But is God finished with Israel? Paul continues with a very important but. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake, for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. The covenant which God has made with his people, Israel, will yet be realized in time. He will yet restore his people unto himself, Paul says. How can we know that God will restore his people in the last days? Well, he gives, an, as an example in verse 5, he says that God is presently saving a remnant, a small group of Israel, according to his own election of grace. He is calling out a remnant. But that will grow in the last days to not a remnant, but to a fullness, he says, in verse 11. And so this is the purpose to which God has decreed the fall of Israel as a people so as to bring salvation to the Gentiles and then to provoke Israel to jealousy so that they in numbers, in vast majority of numbers, come to embrace Jesus Christ. Remember that the gospel, according to Paul, was to go to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. God is not finished with his people, Israel, but will restore them. In verse 11, listen to what Paul says. Verse 11 and verse 12 of Romans 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation is coming to the Gentiles for it to provoke them to jealousy. Now, if the fall of them, that is the fall of Israel, be the riches of the world, that is, if God has brought forth his spiritual wealth and riches of grace to the world at large by the fall of Israel and the diminishing of them, the remnant, God now pouring forth his spirit only upon a few, the diminishing of them, if that's become, Paul says, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. How much more when Israel is brought in, no longer a remnant, but in their fullness. And in verses 25 and 26, Paul makes this ever so clear. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be Wise in your own conceits that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And so <clears throat> all Israel shall be saved. You see, <clears throat> the fullness of the Gentiles, the taking of the gospel to the nations, the vast majority of the nations coming to Christ will provoke Israel to jealousy. And then the fullness of Israel will come in and then that will further enrich a more uh, a more vast fullness of the Gentiles. 
You see, here Paul describes for us what Micah had prophesied some 800 years before in our text. And many nations shall come. Many, not a few. Many. The fullness of the Gentiles. The fullness of Israel. All of Israel. Not every single individual of the Gentiles. Not every single individual within, it, within history, but the vast majority will come. That was the millennial hope of our Reformed and Presbyterian forefathers as well. And I would have you note the following references, just to illustrate this very briefly. In the larger catechism produced by the Westminster Assembly, it asks in question 191, what do we pray for in the second petition of the Lord's Prayer? The answer, in the second petition, we pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed, the gospel propagated throughout the world, the Jews called, the fullness of the Gentiles brought in, the church furnished with all gospel officers and ordinances, purged from corruption, countenanced and maintained by the civil magistrate of every nation. I added that those last three words. That's the implication of every nation. Furthermore, the directory for the public worship of God also issued by the Westminster Assembly gives direction as to what faithful ministers are to pray for in their public prayers, as well as faithful members of the congregation in their secret worship. You should be praying for this as well. To pray for the propagation of the gospel and kingdom of Christ to all nations, for the conversion of the Jews, the fullness of the Gentiles, the fall of Antichrist, and the hastening of the second coming of our Lord. Listen as well to the great hope of that shining light of the Second Reformation, Samuel Rutherford, as he bursts forth in just joy, unspeakable and full of glory, found in his letters, pages 122 and 123. He says, Oh, to see the sight next to Christ coming in the clouds the most joyful. Our elder brethren, the Jews, and Christ fall upon one another's necks and kiss each other. They have been long asunder. They will be kind to one another when they meet. O oh, day, O oh, longed for and lovely day dawn. O oh, sweet Jesus, let me see that sight which will be as life from the dead. Thee and thy ancient people in mutual embraces. Finally, this hope was not simply that of the British Presbyterians, but was the shared hope of those great teachers in the Reformed churches of Holland. As well, as we see in the following citation from Herman Witsius in his classic work, The Economy of the Covenants Between God and Man. This is found in Book 4, Chapter 15, Sections 21 and 35. Witsius says that when the fullness of the Gentiles is brought in, all Israel shall be saved. That is, as our Dutch commentators well observe, not a few. But a very great many, and in a manner, the whole Jewish nation in a full body. And not only so, but also many nations, among whom the name of Christ had long been before forgotten, shall be seen to flock again to the standard of salvation then erected. 
Also note, dear ones, from verse 2, and many nations shall come. And I emphasize the word, not many this time, but I emphasize the word nations. And many nations shall come. Not a minority from a few individuals, but nations in their national capacity will come to the Lord. Civil leaders and princes and kings will lead their people to the Lord along with the ministers of those nations. You see, this is what is taught in Micah. Chapter 4, verse 3. And he shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations. Not just strong individuals. So when the word nation is used in this context, it's not talking about an individual here and there. It's talking about nations in their national capacity. Strong nations will be rebuked from afar. Notice how the word nations is further used in verse 3. And they, that is the nations, shall beat their swords into plowshares. And there, that is the nations, spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Nations. Not a few individuals from each nation. Not even a majority of people from each nation, but nations with a majority of people and in their national capacities with their civil magistrates will flow into the house of the Lord. Again, listen to the prophecy given in Psalm 72. It wasn't simply that all nations will come to the Lord. But listen again to what the psalmist says. Psalm 72, verses 10 and 11. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. There it defines for us. What kind of a nation are we talking about? A few people? No, nations as to their national capacity. All kings shall worship before thee. The same is taught in Isaiah chapter 49. That this is nations as a whole. The officials, the official representatives of these nations shall come unto the Lord. Isaiah 49 verses 22 and 23. Thus saith the Lord God, behold, I will lift up mine hand to the Gentiles and set up my standard to the people, and they shall bring thy sons in their arms, and thy daughters shall be carried upon their shoulders, and kings shall be thy nursing fathers, and their queens thy nursing mothers. They shall bow down to thee with their face toward the earth, and lick up the dust of thy feet, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. This ingathering, dear ones, of the nations is simply the fulfillment of the promise made by the Father to His Son. From all eternity in the covenant of redemption, as it's found in Psalm 2.8, where the Father tells the Son, Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen. Literally, in the Hebrew, I will give thee the nations for thine inheritance. 
and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. No wonder the Apostle Paul in Romans 11.15 could speak of this time of millennial blessing as life from the dead. For herein a worldwide spiritual awakening, dear ones, one which we have not yet seen nor heard of, will come upon the earth. Yes, we must face, according to prophetic scriptures, we must face a time of suffering. We are yet in the 1260 years where the testimony of the witnesses is being contested. Yes, we must continue to suffer for the name of Christ, but we must consider our suffering for Christ's name to be counted all joy. Jesus says, when you suffer for his name, don't go and mope, don't go and mourn, don't go and weep, leap for joy when you suffer for his name. But, dear ones, after this brief period of suffering here upon the earth, and most likely within our generation, the beauty and the glory of Christ's kingdom will dawn. Antichrist will be destroyed and Satan will be bound for a thousand years, a thousand figurative years. But a time of glory that awaits us. Second main point is the hope of ecclesiastical unity. There is hope of ecclesiastical unity in this time of millennial blessing that is to come upon the earth. The church will not be speaking diverse words and languages as to doctrine. That's not to say there won't be diverse languages upon the face of the earth, but that is to say we'll be saying in whatever language, we'll be communicating the same thing with regard to what we believe and how we're to worship God and what church government is to be exercised throughout Christ's church. <clears throat> in Micah 4.2, we find this reference to ecclesiastical unity that will be predominant throughout the world at this time. And many nations shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the Lord of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths for the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Dear ones, we note here that in the period of the church's millennial blessing, many nations from the world will come into the mountain of the Lord, into the house of God, which, as we noted last Lord's Day, is simply a figurative expression for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this wondrous prophecy not only speaks of individual Christians calling each other, come individually, but this prophecy speaks of one nation saying to another nation, come and follow me, come with me, join with me in covenant as we go to the house of the Lord to worship him. See, if one nation is to be united with another nation in coming in their national capacities to the Lord, how can that be accomplished 
apart from a covenanted unity where they agree together this is how and this is the basis upon which we will come to worship the Lord how can it be any other way Amos 3 3 asks the question can two walk together except they be agreed and if two can't walk together unless they be agreed how can all the nations of the world walk together unless they be agreed then dear ones at that point in time, then Christ's prayer will be answered, which he prayed before he was crucified. In John 17, 21, then Christ's high priestly prayer will be realized. Where the Lord prayed to his father, saying that they, that is, his people, his church, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee. That they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. It's not merely talking about a spiritual unity. That is foremost, the unity we have in Christ, mystically and spiritually. But this is also talking about a visible unity for how can a mere spiritual unity, wherein we have diverse denominations, denominations believing, teaching, practicing things contrary to one another, how will that express to the world that the church is one, even as the Father and Son are one? That will more likely tend to drive the world away, if anything. But when there is, in this time of millennial glory, a visible unity in covenanted uniformity, then Christ and the prayer he prayed, then this prayer will be realized. For then the world will know as they see brethren from all over the world locking arms and saying, come, one nation saying to another, come. Let us go up to the house of the Lord. Then all the earth will confess that God did send his son and will believe on him according to the fulfillment of Christ's prayer at that time. And then at that time as well, dear ones, will Israel and the nations together swear national covenants in the name of the Lord. Listen to what it says in Jeremiah 4.2 by way of prophecy that Israel and the Gentile nations will swear covenants together unto the Lord. <clears throat> Verse 1 says, If thou wilt return, O Israel, saith the Lord, return unto me. And if thou wilt put away thine abominations out of my sight, then shalt thou not remove. And verse 2 says, And thou shalt swear the Lord liveth in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness. And the nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. At that time of millennial glory, the nations in Israel will together covenant to be the Lord's people. 
And then, dear ones, at that time, will ecclesiastical unity and uniformity reign throughout the world as prophesied in Zechariah 14.9. Zechariah 14.9 says this, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day shall there be one Lord and his name one. He'll be king over all the earth. be one Lord and his name will be one. What does that mean? His name will be one. Well, it means by whatever God makes himself known, which we know are his ordinances. God makes himself known by his ordinances. That is his name. The name of the Lord is by whatever means God makes himself known. His name, his ordinances, His doctrine, his worship, his government will be one throughout the earth. That's what our shorter catechism teaches concerning the name of God in question 55. It asks the question, what is forbidden in the third commandment, which is thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. And the answer given is this. The third commandment forbiddeth all profaning or abusing of anything whereby God maketh himself known. His name will be one. And dear ones, this is why we steadfastly adhere to faithful national and ecclesiastical covenants sworn on our behalf by our forefathers like the solemn league and covenant. Because this is what they were seeking to accomplish was uniformity, covenanted uniformity, not only within a nation, but between nations. And they did so within three nations. And Holland and other uh, nations in Europe expressed a willingness to join with them in this covenanted uniformity in the Solemn League and Covenant. And this, dear ones, is the uniformity that we see in Micah 4.2, where it speaks of the house of the Lord, the God of Jacob. Come up to the God of Jacob, to the house of the God of Jacob. Why the emphasis of the God of Jacob? Because it is on the covenant which God made with Jacob, with his people Israel. And we are his people. We belong to him. And we will, as nations, invite others to join us as we flow into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, where we will be taught by him through his faithful ministers, as we find in the rest of this verse. And he, that is Christ, will teach us his ways. And we will walk in his paths, for the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The nations at that time will not teach what they want to teach about Christ and his doctrine. The nations at that time and the churches of those nations will not each worship the Lord according to their own dictates, but they will be taught by what is authorized by Christ alone in his word. They will be taught by the Lord and they will walk in his ways as Calvin notes in his commentary on this text true religion is founded on the obedience of faith 
and that God cannot be worshipped except when he himself teaches his people and prescribes to them what is necessary to be done. Hence, when the will of God is revealed to us, we then can truly worship him. When the word is again taken away, there will indeed be some form of divine worship, but there will be no genuine religion such as is pleasing to God. Since it is so, it follows that where the truth is either corrupted or despised, there is no religion, at least such as is approved by God. Men may indeed boast of the name with their lips, but there is no true religion before God except it be formed according to the rule of his word. The last point is this, the hope of universal peace. In Micah chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, we find these words. And he shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall set every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts hath spoken it. Here we simply note that the gospel and where it is genuinely received and practiced always always, always has visible effects in the lives of individuals, that is, in their families and in their vocations. The gospel where it is faithfully preached, received, and practiced always has effect in the life of a church. The gospel where it is faithfully preached, received, and practiced will always, always manifest it in the life of a nation or nations. You see, the effect of the gospel cannot be hidden under a bushel. The work of the gospel cannot help but change even a nation that has submitted itself to Christ. Again, I offer and submit to you that this is one of the fallacies of the all-millennial position that would emphasize primarily the inward work of the gospel to the exclusion of the outward effect in society, in the nations, in families, in the churches of a nation. You cannot contain the gospel. It does indeed begin in our hearts. It must begin there, but it has its effect throughout society. When a nation comes to the Lord, the magistrates will worship before Christ. They will institute godly laws. They will punish idolaters and blasphemers and covenant breakers and Sabbath breakers. They will uphold the law of God faithfully. You see, according to Micah, these are not simply a few individual people who beat their swords into plowshares or their swords into pruning hooks, their spears into plowshares, but entire nations that do so. Not simply one or two nations. Many nations do so. This is not simply talking about in the lives of a few people that the gospel has transformed their lives so that there's no more enmity between a few individuals. This is talking about 
God, through Christ, removing enmity between nations in their official capacity so that nations come and they do away with implements of war so that universal peace reigns throughout the world. What a glorious prospect, dear ones. Universal peace due not to the meritorious work of men or ministers, but due to the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which alone can make enemies into brothers and sisters, which can alone reconcile nations one to another in covenanted unity and uniformity. And dear ones, if this is the blessing for which we wait and pray, how should we then be living now? If we're awaiting the time when we shall be one with our brothers and sisters throughout the world in a covenanted uniformity, should we not be praying earnestly now for that day that God would bring our brothers and sisters together in covenanted unity, in one doctrine, one worship, and one government? In the light of this prophecy, Micah concludes with the words in verse 5, for all people will walk everyone in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. I submit to you that a better word to use would be do for will. For all people do walk everyone in the name of his God, and we do walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In the meantime, Micah says, the nations walk according to their gods, according to their religions. Let them do what they will do. We will not be discouraged by the overwhelming forces that seem to surround us. Though we be a little kingdom, though we be a little flock, we will and we do walk in the name of the Lord. So the Lord calls us to faithfulness in preparing for that great future blessing. And I conclude, dear ones, by pointing out that in looking forward to this time of millennial blessing, because often we receive some objections as post-millennialists, I want you to realize we do not either minimize the need for our present suffering for Christ, nor do we minimize the blessed hope of Christ's second coming. We emphasize both that we must suffer if we would be glorified with him. But we also emphasize as well that our ultimate hope is Christ's second coming. We view the millennium as a figure, as it were, in history. If you will, a type of that eternal glory where we will share one doctrine, one worship and one government. Where we will not simply worship with the right forms, we will worship with the right heart at all times. Where we will sincerely love all our brethren. That's the heavenly glory to which we look forward when Christ returns the second time. And that is described as our blessed hope. Dear ones, do not set your hope entirely upon us. An earthly millennium. You must set your hope beyond that. 
to that heavenly glory which Christ has prepared for you, his people. And so let us say, profess, and exclaim with the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 4.8, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also, that love is appearing. Let us stand in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, we praise Thee for Thy many comforts, Thy many promises, for the hope which Thou dost give to us. Hope here upon the earth and hope forever in heaven. Our hope is forever in Christ. We praise Thee, our Lord, that those who trust in Thee will not be disappointed. Yes, Father, we will fall into discouragement. Help us, Father, by Thy grace to flee from discouragement and self-pity. Help us to flee from the cares of this life, the pleasures of this life that would take us away from the kingdom of Christ, which should be first in our lives. We ask our God that Thou would cause us to work diligently, even now, knowing that we are planting seeds for the future millennium. We ask, Lord, that we would suffer with all courage, that we would not fear Him who can cast the body into the grave, but that we would fear Him most of all who can cast both soul and body into hell, even Thee, our God. We ask our Father that Thou would cause us daily to resort to Thee, to learn to enjoy Thee, to spend time and to make time for Thee in our daily lives, that we might grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our only hope. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. 
and remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.